Please turn your Bibles now to 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 16 of 2 Peter chapter 2. Or rather, sorry, verse 17. Verse 17 of chapter 2 and going to the very end of chapter 2. This is God's word. Please give it your full attention. 2 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 17. These are waterless springs and mists driven about by a storm. For them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of a corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become far worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than, after knowing it, to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. You may be seated. Second Peter, especially chapter 2, has been filled with imagery. While talking about false teachers and their sure judgment from God... Peter spoke about fallen angels, about Noah and the flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, and Lot being rescued amid that judgment. Then he used Balaam as an example of manipulation of God and self-love as a type of prophet, indeed a type of person, which is still among us. And I'll do whatever it takes, even rebel against God to his face to try to get what they think is good and what they desire. But here in our passage, He has four more images to describe the false prophets in this passage. A dry riverbed, a waterless cloud driven about by a storm, a dog who returns to his vomit, and a sow, a pig, that was washed and returns to the mire. These last four images bracket a central truth that Peter is getting across to us in this section. A central truth about sin and freedom for the Christian life, about who we are in our fallen nature before grace. So let's examine the first two images here, which speak about the promises of sinful men. So that's first, the promises of sinful men. Second, we'll uh, examine this principle of sinful men. And lastly, in the final two images, we'll examine the cause of this and the cure for this in the conclusion. So we'll start with the promises, go to the principle, then the cause and the cure. So first, the two images of the nature of promises, which these false prophets promise. They promise sinful freedom and what they actually bring. So the two images of the nature of these promises. These two images are images of the nature of false promises and the appearances which they give, which are really nothing. Mirages, smoke and mirrors, they give. Peter says this explicitly in verse 19. These people promising freedom are actually slaves of corruption. So that 
When Peter says these people are waterless springs and mist driven up about by a storm, he gives two vibrant pictures of what this teaching is like, what these promises are actually doing, just what their promises actually are, what they actually lead to. First, let's examine waterless springs. A freshwater spring, especially for an Israelite, is a wonderful sight to see. They would know this very well, for to their east, they have desert, waterless desert, and they have dry months like we do and depend upon the rain. So these false teachers have pretensions of being a spring of refreshment, and they present themselves like a spring, but Peter has this warning for those who would like to drink from their wells of promises of so-called life and the, the love of sin. These are waterless springs. Like a mirage for a thirsty man, these promises of abundant life are not enough. They have no reality behind them. They are mere promises. People desire life. And these false promises from these false prophets, they, they say that you find life in sin. They do not give it. These false teachers are not merely promisers like the waterless springs that this is uh, imaging for us. They're actually active in this work, in finding these people out to bring them to these waterless springs. So Peter gives a second image to show this, the activity of these false prophets in mist driven about by a storm. We actually see this phenomenon in Amarillo sometimes. Sometimes windy storms bring rain. Other times it's just wind. Just clouds that may look like there's going to be a storm. Although the sky may look like rain and there's wind that makes it seem like there might be rain, it never actually comes. These false teachers are just like those promising clouds, sound and fury, but signifying nothing. These false teachers are actively coming to these Christians like those waterless clouds come upon farmers who look to the horizon for some rain. After all the expectation, the sound, and the fury, those windbag false teachers leave these people with nothing. No life, no rain. Peter calls all of this loud boasts of folly in verse 18, although it is more literally translated loud boasts of futility. Their words are futile, they give nothing, no life, no nothing. Everything they said was futile. It was all an act. They have a great amount of activity, but there's no life, no water, no rain. Examining these images more closely, these are images of enticements as well, as he says in verse 18. These false teachers entice by sensual passions, he says. These images are helpful in showing that the mirage of these false teachers set up, these false teachers set up, Promises of so-called freedom to target specific people. They're active in targeting specific people. He says in verse 18, those who are barely escaping, those who are living in error. These people are the weak and the ignorant around these. And these false teachers who entice really are not merely some attracting force that causes others to be drawn to them. As if they were like the earth pulling meteors down to the surface of the earth through gravity. No, these heretics are actually on the hunt for these people. Like wolves finding a weak cow or a young goat or a weary sheep that gets separated from the pack. They're like fishers who throw out their hooks into the water and hope one dumb enough will latch on. 
waiting for the ignorant to bite and doing all they can to coax them into believing the illusion. These false teachers are among us today, waterless springs who offer hope to the weak and to the young and to the ignorant for their own gain. They say, you can be loved if you just listen to us. You can have life. They promise, be who you are on the inside and then you will be truly happy. Come with us, join us as a family, they say. Enjoy our sexual sins and finally you can be happy. The sexual prophets of our time mirror the the sexual prophets of this time. And they entice young men and women who are confused about why they are suffering. The new fad for the solution for our day is to offer the spring and the sound and the fury of gender ideology, affirming sin in a manner no different than these ancient heretics. This is not merely out of the church, but inside the church. Those who like curse the cursed heretics of Peter's day claim to be in the church. They entice by saying, yes, what's really been wrong is that you're not that you're sinful. What's wrong is that you've been denying who you really are. If you deny who you really are, then how can you be anything but unhappy, they say. Therefore, become who you really are on the inside and you'll be happy. So the false teachers say, these two are waterless springs and clouds brought about by a storm. We may travel very far to reach these places with the promise of rest and refreshment, but there is none there. There's no life here, no freedom, only chains and death, as we'll find in the principle. Thousands are finding this out even now. For Peter reveals what revelry in sin, what these heretics called freedom, actually leads to. The promise of freedom in sin leads to the gloom of utter darkness. What this actually brings is more and more darkness, not light and not life. The promise of actually bring gloom. The word gloom is actually the same word that Peter uses in verse 4 when describing the results of the promises of freedom that Satan gave to the angels before they fall, before they fell rather. Where did these promises lead? They led to chains of gloomy darkness, the hell of our own choosing, our favorite slavery in sin, called freedom by these false prophets and Satan himself indeed. It will eventually lead to the utter darkness of hell, just like the angels. They are brought through their favorite darkness into the kingdom of darkness without freedom and in chains. But what is, what is it that they promise, and what is the principle at work in these promises, which makes them go to gloomy darkness? What's the problem? We turn to verse 19 for that principle. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. That's the principle as we go to the second section. The principle is the nature of sin is slavery, not freedom, as they present it. They promise freedom. Notice, the freedom that these false teachers promise is not freedom unto, or rather is freedom unto sin, not freedom outside of sin. It is a freedom to sin. We've seen this all over 2 Peter 2. These false teachers, verse 2, follow their own sensuality, which he explains in more detail starting in verse 13. These false teachers suffer wrong as the wage of their own wrongdoings. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin, 
They entice unsteady souls, forsaking the right way. They have gone astray. The truth of their freedom and a principle at work is that they are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. This bears itself out in the lives of all the images that we've seen already. They tried to free themselves of the lordship of Christ. That is, Noah, or rather the people of Noah's day, Sodom and Gomorrah and the angels, tried to free themselves of the lordship of God. And they found that sin brought them into gloomy chains of darkness and to death. These men who preach and promise freedom are promising what they can't even give because they themselves are slaves. Only those who have freedom can give freedom. They are slaves to corruption and they are overcome by sin. They have been overcome by corruption and have no freedom to offer these people, although they promise it with sound and fury. So as we go from that principle of those who are overcome by sin are enslaved to it, get to the two images of slavery to sin and its cause. That's verses 22 through 23. The first image is the dog who returns to its vomit. That's image number one of slavery to sin. This is a well-known quote from Proverbs 26 and a common enough sight in our own day. Dogs, animals without reason, return to their own vomit because they can't get past the image of this is food. They can't get past it when their bodies have already rejected it as food. Sin, like that vomited food, is not good for us, although we see it as good. It's against our very nature, created at first for love of God, our sinless God. Sin is poison and not food, but it's the poison that we love. Sin makes us vomit out even the good stuff that we have gotten from God already. God did not make us to ingest sin any more than a dog is able to ingest garbage or rubber balls or stones or anything else. But like the dog in the darkness of his own unreasoning mind, sinners are led to, led back to the sin that they love, even in the darkness of their own mind, even if their spirits rejected, even if they're led away from it, which is quite, uh, quite amazing in the next image. The sow, once washed, returns to the wallow in the mire, the second image of slavery to sin. This image of the sow mirrors what Peter said in verse 20 already. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world, through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become far worse for them than the first. These words point to Jesus himself as these last, that last sentence there is almost verbatim, word for word, what Jesus says in Matthew 12. Speaking about the man who threw out demons from his house, swept it, and then after the demons wandered around in waterless places, returned with even more demons, and it became far worse than the first. The point that Jesus and Peter are getting at in this image is that they are making it making it sure that people know there is no middle ground. One is either a servant of Satan or a servant of God, and there is no middle ground. This isn't a passage about demon possession, at least not completely. When Satan once was a ruler over this house, that man who hears the gospel cannot sweep away the sin in his life and leave his heart vacant. 
Either Satan will return and rule again in his life, or Christ will come into his heart and rule, and sin will wither away. Christ must rule for true inward purity. Like the image of the house, the sow was washed outwardly of its filthiness, and this signifies the outward blessings of the knowledge of Jesus Christ, the knowledge of the gospel, which we have. People who hear the gospel hear what is good. They get a good thing. They live according to true knowledge and avoid what will hurt them and what will defile them. There is a kind of washing here for those people who hear the gospel and in some way live by them. There is a real blessing there. But what is the problem? They've not changed inwardly. They're still a dog or they're still a sow in this image. They have not changed inwardly. They must be washed inwardly in the soul, in the nature. Just like the man who cleaned his home and did not have Christ as his ruler and defender, the sow cannot help but run to the muck and the mire again. Why? Because by that nature... It loves the muck in the mire. It loves it and wants to be back in it. That's its nature. It is futile to wash the outward parts of a sow and not have the inward reform. Inward reform cannot bring, rather, outward reform cannot bring about inward reform. There must be a change of nature. That is the cause of these these defilements and sin, of this slavery in sin. It's our nature. It's our fallen nature. What we need to realize after all this is that he's not just describing false teachers in this. He's describing us. He's describing humans. He's describing humans before the influence of the Holy Spirit. We, all of us, love sin by our very nature and hate the law of God. We'll make any excuse for sin. We'll take any burden for sin. We'll lie, we'll cheat, we'll steal, we'll cut off body parts for sin, we'll kill our family members for sin. Human history in our own lives are littered with examples of this, of the love for sin making us do horrible things. This is the so-called freedom of the heretics that we lust after, the desire of sin. We desire this type of freedom by our own sinful nature. We desire to be outside of God, outside of God's law, and completely on our own. To decide for ourselves what is good and what is bad. We want to be God in every particular. So that in this way of life, this desire for freedom is directly contrary to God in everything. And his law, Paul says this in Galatians 5.17, The flesh flesh, rather, lusteth after the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another. These are contrary to one another, the flesh and the spirit. Someone in this state of the flesh is self-satisfied. That is, they have self-love, and they're satisfied with their own ideas of the world. Just as these false teachers are self-satisfied with their own rule, their own gospel, their own way of life, and their own sin, they have no conviction of sin. Why would they? Because they are the ones who make the rules, and they have their own version of the law, and therefore their own idea of what righteousness is. No matter that their bodies vomit out what they ingest, they love what is killing them, and they are self-satisfied with those things. This person cannot be a Christian. Even someone who is convicted of sin 
and is no longer self-satisfied with sin is not a Christian. Conviction is good, but could be wrong. And getting to the end of your rope with yourself and your own schemes for righteousness is good. But this is all just preparation for making one a Christian. We must, to be Christians, realize what these false teachers had not, that it is God's law which is true, his righteousness, and we have absolutely no ability to keep it. They took that and said, well, then I can do whatever I want. And as Peter says, if we are slaves of sin and sin overcomes us. Rather, we are slaves of sin when it overcomes us. And brothers and sisters, who here has not one time or another been overcome by sin? It's describing us before the influence of the Spirit. Even if we could do one good thing, which we cannot of ourselves do, we could not keep the law, which requires perfect, personal, perpetual, entire obedience. The law is true from God, a divine origin, with divine authority, and we must turn from first Conviction from the law, a turn from self-satisfaction and self-love, which does not make a Christian, but it is the maybe antechamber to Christianity. We must turn from those things to second, delight in the law and the things that the Lord has given. The true Christian is no longer self-satisfied and self-loving like Balaam, who is ready to curse God and man for his own desires. Now the man of God, because of the new nature implanted with him, detests sin, and therefore detests self, which is sinful, which is further than mere conviction of sin. He says, Romans 7, 24, O wretched man that I am, says the Christian, who shall deliver me from this body of death? Where before, by nature, we dogs had said, Romans 8, 7, and we had a mind that is set on the flesh, and that is by nature hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. The Christian now says, because the divine nature implanted in him, Romans 7, 22, I delight in the law. No, non, no Christian can say anything else. But also, a non-Christian cannot delight in the law because they create their own. The Christian now says, because of the divine nature implanted in him, that is 2 Peter 1, 4, I delight in the law of God in my inward man. We need a new nature. This is the cure to the principle of sin within our fallen nature. We need a new nature in order to get away from this. We can't do this ourselves. How do we get a new nature? Can we do anything? Whether we continue enslaved to sin or not is not dependent upon us. It is dependent upon the work of Christ we need a new nature. We cannot give ourselves a new nature, but Christ can and has for, the, for those who have faith in him. We have the divine nature through Christ's work on the cross. He crucified the old man and the old man of sin on the cross. How can we say this? Because if we are united to Christ by faith, then it's as if our whole old sinful man was nailed on the cross with Christ. We, being united to Christ, are dead to sin. That is our new nature. We are dead to sin. And even more than this, we have life in Christ, being risen with him, being united to him. The cure to slavery to sin is in Christ's nature. 
In him, we are justified and sanctified. In the divine nature, which we have by the Christ of the promises. That is, again, coming from 2 Peter 1.4. By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. We have escaped through the the divine nature that has been given to us in Christ. Before dogs and pigs that we were by nature, we could not resist sin at all, nor did we want to resist sin. Why would we? Now restored to true knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, we can resist evil and do good. What's more? It only remains for us to do those good things. Consider yourselves dead to sin, brothers and sisters. If Christ died on the cross, and in fact he did, then you who have faith in him have your sinful natures crucified with him, also in fact. So as Paul says, consider yourselves, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, and as we have been raised to newness of life, so walk in it. Consider yourselves dead to sin, dead to sin and its influence and its mastery. This new nature hates sin. It hates self because of sin. And it loves God and loves the law. All these things are impossible for the man in his natural sin, the dog who returns to its sinful vomit and the sow to its mire. But we Christians who have the cure through faith in Jesus Christ, united to Christ in his work, so that the old man is crucified and we are slaves to righteousness, we Christians might object and wonder why sin is still in us, and wonder if we have this new nature. There is still conflict in the inner man, is there not, in the Christian? He is not completely free of sin, nor does he always hate it like he ought. But no Christian, hear this, no Christian is a slave to sin. The principle is gone in us. Because we have a new nature. We're in a completely different category now, brothers and sisters. We are dead to sin and to its power. No Christian is a slave to sin. We must never be deceived into thinking, as these heretics tried to deceive these Christians, that any Christian is a slave to sin or can be a slave to sin. We have died to sin, Romans 6, 2. Although sin continues to live in us as to say something very different to say that we are living in sin. Sin continues to live in us, but we are not those who live in sin. As Murray says, summarizing what Paul says here in Romans 6, although sin is active in the believer, he does not live in sin. Active, yes, but we do not live in sin. We are no longer part of that kingdom of gloomy darkness. And because of the work of Christ, the old man has been crucified in us with Christ. The person in this category does not live in sin, nor does he serve sin. Though sin may still attach itself to him. Christians have sin always tempting us to serve it. But that is another thing entirely than being a slave to sin. Unlike the false teachers with their obvious fallen nature, Christians do not give their heart to sin. 
though we may sinfully act like them. Our heart, our love, our life, they are all in Christ alone. So we repent and we hate sin. We do not live in sin, although we may indeed sometimes have sin attached to us. The Christian must live according to this new nature, the nature of liberty, and making no provision for the flesh to fulfill the desires thereof. See also our liberty in Romans 6.14, for sin shall have no dominion over you, shall have no dominion over you, saying this for, for certain, for you are not under the law, but under grace. Christians no longer serve sin. Once we have faith in Christ, we must simply believe that we are now lorded over by Christ. He is our Lord, and no longer sin is our master. And walk in the light of those things, because they are true. But we still sin, yes. We have the cure for sin, however, in the new nature that Christ has purchased for us, but we still sin. As we grow in our Christian walk, we see how much the dog, which clings so closely in us, desires to return to its own vomit, and the sow, its mire, but how much we are like saved Israel, who, after the Exodus, desired to go back to slavery in Egypt because they could satisfy their basic desires there. How much it seems like we are overcome by our sin in our lives. Is there any hope? Be encouraged, Christians, as we close by Romans 6, 6. We know that our old self was crucified with Christ in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. These heretics had taken to themselves in Christ's holy name and blaspheming his name the ways of muck and mire and vomit and sin. How can we who are changed New men and new women with new natures in Christ return to those things that we hate. What a contradiction we become if we do this. What needless misery we place on ourselves by returning to our vomit. No longer as dogs, but as people returning to vomit. As if we were still in that kingdom of gloomy darkness. You are free, brothers and sisters, for Christ alone sets us free. The truth of Christ sets us free. You are free to do what is good and what is right. Free to live, for the kingdom is the kingdom of life. Don't be discouraged if that life seems far away to us in our day-to-day life. There are great promises for us. Greater is he that is for us than he that is against us, even if that is for our own sin in us. 1 John 4, 4. He, the eternal God, is our refuge, and we rest underneath his everlasting arms, Deuteronomy 4. Let us be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might, Ephesians 6.10. For it is he that, on the cross, defeated not only sin, but death and hell and Satan, too, our greatest enemy. And he soon shall tread down our enemies until even Satan is tread underfoot. But he has promised never to tread underfoot never to tread underfoot a bruised reed. And a smoking wick he will not quench, Matthew 12. He has sent the spirit that we might have life and have it abundantly, an eternal victory in Christ Jesus, through the gift of faith alone in him. Until the Son appear, we will in the spirit nature, this new nature, The Holy Spirit nature given to us surely go from strength to strength. For he who is with us is greater than those who are against us. 
even the giants of our sin and ourself. Believe God. If you have faith in Christ, you are no longer a slave to sin. Live, a Christian, in the liberty of the love of God. Trust in Christ and no longer yourself. He is the stream of life whose waters make glad the people of God. In him and in him alone is abundant life. Let us go to him in prayer. Lord, forgive us as we have so often desired the pods which give us no nourishment. We desire the muck and the mire and the vomit. We desire our own sin, our favorite slavery. We ask, Lord, that you would disabuse us of these horrible thoughts, these thoughts from the, that old nature which we no longer have as Christians. And if there are those here who still have those thoughts, that old nature, the old man, who still live in their own selves, in their own life, Lord, we pray that they would come to the waters without without money and without price, or that they would have faith in Christ Jesus, the eternal son of David, that you, as you are on the throne, might rule our hearts, you might defend us from ourselves, and Lord, as you are so great, you will bring us to that great day of redemption. Lord, it is not by our strength, but by the work that you have done that we will conquer. For Lord, That great city, that new Jerusalem, is for the one who conquers, and you have conquered alone. We pray, Lord, that you would make us more and more holy in our lives, that we would see the goodness of your law. Lord, that we would look to you and be pleased. Lord, that in our prayers we would go to you, that we would have sweet times of prayer. That, Lord, as you are all goodness, as you are all everything, Lord, all blessedness, all goodness, all greatness. Lord, as we go to you, that we might see you as you are, even now on this earth until we will see you with our very eyes. Give us the eyes of faith. Give us the walk of faith, Lord, that we might walk now as, as men and women and no longer as dogs and pigs. Lord, may you be glorified, we pray, in this our worship today. In your son's name we pray. Amen.